What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay, and this week I'm flying solo. If you're listening to this for the first time, usually there are two of us, but my co-presenter Mark DeVoe is away due to a family bereavement, and I'm sure you'll all join me in passing on my condolences to Mark and his family at this time. That means, dear listener, you lumbered with little old me for the whole episode. And because there is less waffle from the pair of us, and oh, we do like to waffle, uh, I thought I'd give you a little treat at the end of the episode. So do stick around for that. But some things never change. And as always, today's show is sponsored by our wonderful Academates on the Bestseller Academy and our patrons on Patreon. And we have a new patron this week, Jackson Smith. Thank you, Jackson, for your ongoing support. We simply could not keep the show going without beautiful people like you. Now, here's the thing. What do you get when you support us on Patreon? So if you become a chart topper supporter, you get access to over 120, and yes, I just counted them today, over 120 deep dive and special episodes on subjects like blog tours, writer burnout, TikTok editing, copy editing, screenwriting, book launches, writing sex scenes, networking, well building YouTube and much, much more. We speak to experts in their field, including agents and publishers. And all this stuff is there for you to access at any time as a chart topper supporter on Patreon. So to check that out, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Also, if you sign up to the Academy, well, you get to join the most supportive writing community out there. You get me and Mr. D as your coaches. Mr. D does writing life coaching and I focus on craft. There are courses plenty to help you become a better writer. I have a weekly writing surgery over on Zoom. You can book one-to-one sessions with me. Oh, and you get all those deep dives, which you can dip into at any time using our app. To discover more about the Academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Uh, there's a link in the show notes. So without any further ado, let's jump into this week's interview with our special guest author, Lou Abercrombie. Lou has worked in TV and film production and as a photographer, and a few years ago started writing children's books combining her passion for swimming and mathematics. Her debut novel, Fig Swims the World, was longlisted for the Bath Children's Award, and her new book, Amazing Maths, makes the subject of mathematics accessible in a way that I wish was around when I was at school. We discuss pivoting from fiction to nonfiction, writing stories out of order, and how she's inspired by water. Enjoy. Lou Abercrombie, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today? I am very good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. And 
you've had an incredible couple of years and I just basically wanted to do a quick catch up just to see how things are. and you know you've had two amazing children's books but also you're writing non-fiction as well and we'll talk about those books and that pivot to non-fiction and what the future holds as well but th- let's start with the two books you know you've got Fig Swims the World which was long listed for the Bath Children's Novel Award and Coming Up for Air which has amazing reviews and the, both these books sort of combine your love of swimming and, and maths and well let's start with Fig Swims the World. How did that, because you've, you've worked in TV, you've worked in post-production, you've been a photographer. Tell us how Fig Swims the World first came about. Um, I'm, a, I'm also a big swimmer um, and I'd started writing. I'd written another book, got myself an agent, um, whilst I was waiting for the publishing world to decide whether or not they're interested in the first book, I decided to write Fig. Um, it came about because I just started imagining the kind of people that I could meet and building on them, making them bigger characters. And there's so many different characters that you meet when you go to different swimming events. I was in Mallorca, where everyone got on very well, and we all talked about cake and how much we like swimming. <laughs> uh, there was one there's one topic that splits the group, uh, the B word. But apart from that, uh, <laughs> sw- we've all got swimming in common. And it just presented to me the idea that I could have an entire book full of characters I already had them there and also all the different places I've been in the world. So it just was the obvious thing, really. So um, that was kind of the basis. And also I've got an image of my daughter who, when she was one, do you remember those Nirvana, uh, that Nirvana poster of a baby yeah, swimming yeah. under the water? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. When, I, when she was one, I took her to a, a, a swimming uh lessons. And the, the done thing back in London was to go and have your baby dressed up in a tutu and then just dropped in the water with a photographer waiting underneath. And so I've got this brilliant image of my baby daughter, now 16, sort of just grizzling and crying like she absolutely hates it. She now, she really hates swimming. So that was like my starting image. And I kind of mention it in Fig Swims the World as being like the kind of first moment that she decides she doesn't ever want to get in the water and swim. And that obviously became my first challenge and first obstacle for the character to get beyond. Yes, well, let's let's talk about Fig Swims World, the the the, the pitch for it, the plot line for it, because it's about somebody who has to swim the world but hates swimming. Um, mm. So tell us about Fig. Where I mean, Fig, uh, you said you know you were talking about characters and knowing people in the swimming world, but tell us how this how Fig her, her you know herself came about. Well, I I I needed to give her a want and a need, you know mm-hmm. that the classic thing for writing, um, and it. Based, the basic premise is that her mum has been creating the New Year's resolutions for her for her entire life. She's the kind of nightmare mother who can't cut the apron strings. Now, she's got to 15 years old. She's fed up with her mum kind of uh, still deciding all these challenges. So she, the premise is that she's seen some uh, young girl who's 14 or 15 herself and who's sailed around the world and is actually based on a real person. Um, and so she gets this idea that she wants to swim. I, I d- I don't know that I could probably say exactly why she decides she wants to swim. It's just uh, it's just something that she decides to do. It's the most unlikely thing that her mum is going to ever guess that she will do. So it's kind of sticking two fingers up her mother in the beginning. <laughs> but that that is the great, I think all classic kids' book have that thing where a rebellious child decides to stamp the feet and I'm gonna do this no matter how crazy it seems. What were your what were your influences? I I read somewhere you 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 know. You read Judy Bloom. You read Mar- Mallory Towers, Sweet Valley High. Were they big influences on on Fig? Um, 
actually, I don't think they were. The first thing I ever wrote, which hasn't been published, was probably more influenced by Mallory Towers and Sweet Valley High. Um, Fig came from, so when I wrote that, I was writing in third person past tense. And then when I started writing Fig, I decided to go on with the, the first person present tense. And it was like the character kind of just came out of me right. and it just, you know, it kept on spewing out. And it that it's kind of where she, the, the fig in me kind of came out. So it wasn't actually influenced by anything I'd read as a child. It's just more that I felt maybe more of what I've read more as an adult, actually. Um, things like uh, the Elef Eleanor Oliphant book, things right. like that are probably a bit more like that. Right. Oh, that's, that's interesting. It's fascinating because it's, it's, um, I mean, as much as people will love Judy Bloom, Mallory Tower, Sweet Valley High, they are of their time, I think. And I yeah. think with uh, a mistake a lot of children's authors make is that well, they will try and base it on what they read when they were kids. And, and you know, they'll often get rejections because they're told that it's it's just not what kids are reading now. So yeah. um, did you, were you running it by your own children when you were writing it? Were you, were you sort of run, <laughs> giving them chapters or just keeping, no, no. you're shaking your head. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. I wrote, I wrote the whole thing. No, no one read it until I'd got an agent. Actually, until yeah, until it was finished. Actually, right. uh, I wouldn't let J my husband Joe read it at all until um, until it was actually in book form. Until it was you know completely. <laughs> um, it's it's a very vulnerable process, isn't it? And so yeah. you know, I don't need to be criticised when it's not quite finished. Anyone can criticise it afterwards because that's fine because the publisher's decided that it's okay to go, but. Before that point, there's too much that can change. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I remember the first time we had Joe come on the podcast, he he told us that he had his mother read it. And yeah. we were like, and I think she was an English teacher, so she actually gave him some constructive criticism. But there's no way I'm giving, you know, my stuff to anyone, you know, and any of my family, not until it's it's nice and neatly packaged in a in, yeah. a, in a car cover or paperback or whatever. Now, <laughs> you've, um, you mentioned briefly there that there was a first book that wasn't published. Is that mm -hmm. still ongoing? Is that still something that could happen? Or is that being consigned to experience or...? Um, I mean, my actually, funnily enough, my eldest daughter has read that one because it's kind of a it's a it's like a dance school talent school based in Mallory Towers type scenario. Right, right, right. Um, bah, it's a middle grade. I don't know that I really can write middle grade. I've kind of people tend to say that my writing is the voice is too old, and I think unless I learn, if some someone could teach me how to dumb not dumb down, that's a really wrong thing to say. Uh, but you know what I mean? It's it's writing a different kind of tone. And I, I'm really not really interested. I prefer teen and YA as a, a I'd rather talk to children in a certain way and talk to readers in a in a true voice to me because that's what's coming at me, especially when I'm writing in first person. I I can't necessarily imagine myself under the age of say 12, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's funny. I am um, I know exactly what you mean because I've tried writing middle grade and it's really hard really really, really hard. hard i think i think yeah. it takes a particular particular voice and insight that i just don't i just don't have and i take my hat off to anyone anyone who can, who can do it having gone through the process of fig swims the world and ha having had it published and that whole thing what were the big biggest lessons that you learned from from a debut novel um well the whole editing process i think just right. start start to finish and the feeling that 
you know, when you read, you know, you have to read chapters when you go to school visits and things like that. Yeah. And I read it and I sort of think that's not me. That's, I didn't, I, it doesn't feel like I wrote it because right. it's been through such a process of editing and different people's opinions and you take things out. And so I think for me, it's the, ed- the editing process I love, actually. I love yeah. getting feedback from someone else. Obviously, it's a vulnerable feeling. And when someone says something and you think the opposite, you have to go through those emotions before you can accept that they probably are right. Um, So from a debut, I think that was the biggest, biggest change. I'd say actually several books down the line, I feel like I'm slowly beginning to change. Um, It wasn't just the first book, really. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that thing about editing is is, you're right about voice because um, I write certainly the the new books I'm doing now, I write very much in in a vernacular and it's kind of working class and people are always trying to correct it. And it's like, no, it's wrong on purpose. It is in that voice (laughs) for a reason, you know. So uh, coming up for air, which has just a most absolutely gorgeous cover and folks, we're going to put a link in the show notes to Lou's website so you can see it. What I loved about this is your protagonist, Coco, is a really, really positive character. Uh, and I think particularly if you are writing in in that sort of for older kids and that YA thing, that can be a challenge because I think the the first instinct is to go to someone who might be a bit stroppy, might be a bit moody. But Coco is really positive, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And and I I completely I wanted to make a main character who's the absolute opposite of Fig. Fig is like full of fears, full of problems, not got any friends. And uh Coco, the inspiration was the kind of magnetic people you meet who you want to be. You want to be with them and they make you feel like you are their best friend. And so the starting point, and and lots of people have said to me, it is kind of unusual that Coco, you don't get many characters like Coco no. because she's kind of not broken. You know, the, the the normal story arc is where you're trying to fix your main character. Well, yeah. actually, I'm not trying to fix her. If anything, she starts off at the beginning, not broken, mostly. And then she gets broken by her situation and then still manages to come back. So it's kind of, it was a really interesting um, way of doing things because she was an absolute pleasure to write, actually, because she was just so positive. And I don't think you read that many stories about positive people. No, I think you're absolutely right. And again, but again, it's harder. I think the natural instinct is is to go with some, like you say, who is broken. And that's almost easier in a way because you have something to fix but it's interesting that her, her character of her mother min is much more of a sort of it's it's a bit like the absolutely fabulous uh dynamic where you you know the mother is more of a teenager more of a more outlandish yeah. is yeah. Uh, are, you, are you writing from experience there lou <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit there's definitely some experiences there i mean her mum and her uncle were just such a lot of fun to write. And I just would be writing it and just bursting out laughing because I basically decided that they were the two teenagers and exactly that. Coco was the the adult in the family and she goes and ends up living with her her mum and her uncle Henry. And they are these teenagers and it ties in with the whole mystery anyway, but they are still the teenagers. And then kind of the ridiculous image of these nearly 40-something adults talking to each and and if if anything you know if I see my brother and sister there's always that little bit of sibling (laughs) you do resort back to being how you were in your teenage years so it was kind of taking that and just exploding it and you know having Coco go what are you doing it's just this is really it's pathetic but it's also hilarious isn't it so they were I, I loved writing those scenes because they were just they came alive the most for me 
Brilliant stuff. Now, I read somewhere that you write out of order. You don't necessarily write mm. chronologically. Can can you tell us about that? What What's your kind of... Um, uh, are you are you just sort of putting down ideas as they come to you, or is there a structure first, and you're you're sort of filling in gaps? How does that work for you? Um, I I've, I've changed it a little bit recently, but I tend to just write the scenes that I want to write. I just Great. in the very beginning, I've got a rough idea of who the main character is and the kind of scenario that I set them up in. Quite often, I don't know what their story arc is, and I don't know where they're going, and I just know what you know, scenario I've put them in. And then I just write whatever comes into my head. Sometimes it's the first scene. Sometimes it's the last scene, you know, just it, literally it's about unblocking the flow really. Um, and just seeing how it happens. And then, and then that way, and then as I keep going, actually, I still continue. I sort of go, oh, I fancy writing that today. And so I'll just go forward and I'll write that because I find that it informs some of the bits that I'm stuck on. So, you know, you'll have a main character say, oh, so-and-so, I did some, something last night. And you go, oh, that's what happened last night. And then I can go back and actually write that scene. So it's just a way of me kind of, it's kind of like brainstorming in a way. Yeah. Um, but the, the, these days I'm much more about, I, I'm trying to be very um, disciplined on having an actual plot. <laughs> <laughs> natural plot and an actual arc. So I I try to have this thing of, you know, what the character wants, needs and what's standing in their way. And I'm trying to be, because if I can't write that down, then I don't have the right story. Because I always get to a certain point in the book and I go, oh, I don't know what I'm writing. So I'm trying to go beyond that, but still trying to maintain that level of, you know, it's fresh as I'm writing it. So Yeah. Yeah. I think you're in very good company. I think Diana Gabaldon does the same thing, actually. And she writes right. the thing that inspires her in that moment and then sort of pieces it. To, and of course, there is, people forget, there is the revision process. You know, you go back, you draft it, you've got the shape of something, and then you you can smooth out all those kind of, those, those rough edges as well. Um, I also heard that when you started out writing children's books for the first time you avoided reading other writers for the fear that it might mm. sort of can you tell yeah. us about that as well I, I couldn't read I just couldn't right, do right. any reading it was like I just had to concentrate solely on what I was writing and what was coming out of me now I read all the time there's no issue mm -hmm. at all and I actually really like reading you know I'll, I'll read things and I'll notice the the vocabulary or the way they've said something. And I'll experiment with that in my own writing to see whether or not, you know, people have got certain styles in, the, um, is it love and hope and sorrow or something like that? She writes in a certain way where she'll say say something and then she'll put something in speech marks. And I kind of, right. that sort of thing is quite nice to notice how they do that. So, but when I was writing Fig, I absolutely, it was, I just couldn't be distracted. And it was like, I had all this story in my head that I just had to get out because mm -hmm. in my head, the whole movie has played out. Yeah. And if I could just open up my brain and project it onto the computer screen and have it all written there, then that'd be fine. That would be much better than having to sit there writing it. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure someone's working on an app for that. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Look forward to that one. <laughs> now, you, mentioned, you mentioned earlier that you do school events. And uh, again, folks on Lou's website, you can see uh, photos of those events there entire halls full of children. Um, I've done school events for classes. I'm trying to imagine some, an, a more terrifying audience. Uh, so how have you, you know, how have you done that? How, how have those uh, events been for you? And do you get, uh, have you learned anything that's kind of changed the way that you write, the kind of feedback that you get from those events? Um, 
I mean, the, the biggest one I've done is like 200 kids. Um, and wow. when I started doing them back when Fig came out, I did three events in one day oh just God. before COVID lockdown, actually. Um, and I was terrified. I'd read yeah. uh, Viv Groskop's um, How to Own the Room. So I'd kind of taken on board, very nervous speaker, actually. And then more recently, I went down to Cornwall and I had a whole shed load of schools to do. And they're all so enthusiastic and passionate about swimming and obviously being surrounded by the sea right. down there. Um, I found my feet and right. I just, and actually fine tuning the, the PowerPoint that I talk about and, and listening to what my children say is interesting and what they want to hear when they go to a, an author visit has really, really helped me. So I've kind of fine tuned it over the time. And now I feel like I've got it really down to a beat. And it's not about me trying to push my books and sell my books, sell my books. It's about, um, me trying to inspire kids to write and to find anything in their life and also live a, a vibrant and full life so that they can then go on to write. So it's 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 about inspiration more than anything. Um and no, I don't think I've I don't think I've had any feedback from them yet about um <laughs> how I could check. They do ask me, they do, you know, they ask the obvious questions like, are you famous? And do you know JK Rowling and <laughs> how much do you earn? But uh, they don't, they haven't come up with any um they occasionally want me to all write. I, one class did ask me how I pick my names. And I say, well, I just, when I find a nice name, I write, I've got books, I write down names in. And so they all wrote down their names on a big piece of paper and handed it to me because they were all oh. desperate to be in the book, which I thought was very sweet. That's really sweet. That's really yeah. sweet. They always want to know how much you earn, don't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause, cause I'd done a film. One of them put the hand up and said, are you a millionaire? I was yeah. like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Far from it. Now, uh, as well as these two amazing fiction books for children you're doing something very different this year and this goes back to your you know original love which is maths uh, you've got a book everyday stem amazing maths first of all where was this book when i was a kid <laughs> and, <laughs> and what were the challenges of writing an engaging book about maths for kids it's it's completely different mm -hmm. way of writing um i love maths so that's a really good start and it's just so much more in the planning so i think that's helped me in the fiction side because i've learned how to plan a bit more right. it's just about coming up with a proposal and your kind of work with 12 spreads or however many spreads and then um you have a certain word count so you'll get told you need I don't know, an introduction for 30 words and then three different main text boxes and they could be about 75 words each or 200, I don't know, it's about 450 words total across a page. Right. And then you have to plan it around that. And actually that is an amazing, if you want to write about, so on all the pages of the maths book, there's um, an inspiring person, an inspiring mathematician. And I've gone all the way around the world back in time because maths, you know, isn't necessarily Western at all. It, it comes from all over the world. Mm. And then you read about these mathematicians and then you have to condense that down to 75 words. That's not a lot of words to write about someone. So you take in so much information and then you have to, you know, shorten it down until it's actually interesting and it's, you're still saying something and it's so it's still worth being there. So it's about focusing the mind. So that was, it was a really interesting process from that point of view, but it was all planned right from the beginning. I had to work out what it's all about maths and how we use maths in our everyday lives. And so I've just, I've got, because I'm a photographer, I've got how maths is used in photography. And so there's this beautiful illustration of a camera and all the different ways. It's just basically to tell children, look, you might not like the maths you're being taught in school, but you yes. are always going to use maths in absolutely every single job 
everyday life. Um, and so that's that basically covers it, really. And it's just about planning more than anything. I say again, where was this book when I was a kid? <laughs> I've, I've never used a quadratic equation in my life, but I, I would, you know, the, the older you get, the more you realise that out what a large part that math plays in our lives and and it can be fun and it can be interesting but yeah it's not not much to do with longer vision i guess um, so <laughs> um let's uh let's let's talk about what's what's coming next from from you Lou. is mm. there, are there more children's books on the horizon or will you be sort of doing the children's book non-fiction or is it non-fiction now what does the future hold um in an ideal world i would write a children's book and a, a non-fiction book in a year I kind of right. like the way that that kind of uses both sides of my brain in a way yeah. um I'm currently writing another swimming book called uh, who dares swims um <laughs> aiming at slightly higher so more YA so that um I can use a little bit more bad language that I'd like <laughs> and slightly go down some slightly more adult themes perhaps. Um, and it's, yeah, it's going to be more of the same, really a fix into the world kind of feeding into the whole love of swimming. Try it. Some of the feedback I've got from the school visits is especially from boys. They're very interested in the technical details of swimming. You know, when I talk about right. crocodile eyes and different techniques and strokes and so on, they're all like looking up and they're asking the questions about that. So if I can get boys reading it, because they're interested in the subject matter and they're interested in swimming, then I feel like I've won because I've got an 11 year old son who I can see him on the wane in terms of reading. He's just not finding the books he wants to read. So I, in my head, I'm really interested in finding books that can appeal to both boys and girls. Yeah, it is tough. You, uh, I saw the same thing with my son. Uh, we sort of lost him to gaming in his teens. Yeah. You know, and um, it was, uh, in the end, it was actually Asterix and Tintin that saved the day. But um, but yeah, if you've got a specialist interest like that. And let listeners, you should know, Lou is not kidding when she talks about a love of swimming. I mean, you've swum marathons, you've done, you've done <laughs> free diving, all sorts of stuff. I mean, where did that all start for you? Uh, swimming, I've always swum, swam with my grandpa at Eastbourne when I was young. And then I got, I, I read an article about Lord Byron in a EasyJet flight magazine <laughs> and read that he'd done this big swim from Europe to Asia. And I was close to a midlife crisis point and I just decided I would do that. Um, so I kind of got into swimming. That's how I did it. Um, the, the, the free diving was purely because I found I was researching mermaids because I was thinking I'd make a prequel, a sequel to Fig. And I was looking at the main character when I, done one of my swims i swam around the canals in copenhagen these open up every year there's like a, a a route around four canals um and i'd seen mermaids swimming there and by mermaids i mean professional mermaids with the tails and the monofins wow. and they were amazing swimmers so i was looking that up and then I, I found this whole article about how a journalist had gone off and learned to free dive and been photographed as a mermaid and so i thought well I, I, i'm just going to do that because i can use that as material for my book um i was terrible at it i failed every single thing that you could possibly think of in free diving but it gave me the source material for coco in coming up for air so it kind of I like going off and doing adventures. I like doing things that are going to feed into new ideas for books. So, yeah. And to sw I mean, swimming obviously inspires you, but we often talk about how when we might get stuck, when we need to think about, you know, most of us will go for a walk. Some of us might go swimming. Are you getting some of your best ideas while you're swimming? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I write whilst I swim. I t definitely work out plot holes, uh, anything in water. So I have... 
my husband bought me a waterproof notebook to have in the bath <laughs> and a pen that if you, you can, you know, when you, some pens you can't use when they're upside down so yep. that I don't actually have to get out of the bath. I've got a waterproof notebook and a pen that writes upside down so that when I'm plot solving in the bath, I can write all those ideas and otherwise I'm just going to lie there and go, oh, I've got to get out now because otherwise I'm going to forget those <laughs> fixes. So anything to do with water will fix my um, writing problems. Basically, <laughs> yeah, swimming, water. Yeah, I'd, I'd highly recommend it. It's very uh, meditative. Yeah, no, it sounds fantastic. It sounds absolutely brilliant. Unfortunately, where I live, um, a lot of the water around here is, has sewage in it, sadly. Oh. But we won't, we won't get into that now. But no. Um, yeah, no, fo- um, folks, amazing trio of books there. Fig swims the world coming up for air and amazing mass. I will put link, like I said, we'll put links in the show notes to lose a website so you can discover all of these. Lou, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Oh, absolute uh, pleasure. Absolutely amazing, and hope to speak to you again real soon. Thank you. Huge thanks to Lou Abercrombie for taking the time to speak to me. And you'll find links to her website in the show notes. And if you're one of those people who listen every week and think, what the blimmin' show notes? Those are the notes that you'll find that come with each episode on your podcast app. Now, depending on what app you've got, you might have to press or swipe or do something to find them. But each episode of the podcast has a page over on bestsellerexperiment.com with all the links you can eat. Now, you may recall that I mentioned a little treat earlier, and if you've been listening to the podcast recently, you might have heard me mention roughly 2,000 times that a film I've written is coming out. Well, it's finally here this week. It's a monster movie called Unwelcome, released by Warner Brothers in the UK on January 27th, 2023, and that's this week. It's coming in the States on March 10th and other parts of the world. News on that soon. So what I've got for you here is a sneak peek extract from a forthcoming deep dive with myself and the film's director, John Wright. And who better to introduce it than uh, me? So here it is. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, a special deep dive episode of the podcast that we record exclusively for our patrons on Patreon and Academates on the Bestseller Academy. And it's something a bit different this week. Now, I may have mentioned once or twice that I've written a film called Unwelcome. Uh, I co-wrote the story with the director, John Wright, and then I pootled off and wrote the screenplay on my own. And as you'll hear, we you know, worked on it back and forth. Uh, John and I have worked together previously on Robot Overlords. Actually, we've worked on all kinds of stuff over the years, but those are the two things that have been made so far, uh, such as the life of a screenwriter. Uh, John is also the director of films like Grabbers and TV shows like Brassic and Dalgleish. Back in the summer of 2021, while all the press stuff was being recorded for the film, John and I gathered questions from the BXP team and Academy members about the making of the film and set out to answer them. So we talk about how we work together, how he works with the actors and crew, and generally how a film is developed and made. Uh, a big thanks to everyone who sent in the questions. We had great fun recording it, as you'll see and hear. The film is out on 27th of January 2023 in the UK, 10th of March in the USA, and the rest of the world dates all over the place. But I'll, if you follow me on social media, you will know. Uh, in the meantime, here's the trailer, followed by myself and John. Enjoy. We've been gifted this beautiful house. We live here. Can you believe it? Maeve wanted to keep the place in your family, Jamie. 
really appreciate the house. Well, then you know. It's got a hole in the roof. The Whelan, they'll do a good job. Jamie, Maya, you just carry on with your day as if we weren't here. There is one thing I need to show you, and it's a little bit peculiar. Every evening before sunset, she'd leave a blood offering here. Sorry, did you say blood? For who? For the Red Cups. They'll need feeding. We'll be hungry. Can I get in my own house, please? You own it, dear. How many times have the English come to this country and told us what's theirs is now theirs? They need to know their place. Tim! What did you leave out tonight? Oh, shoot. You can't miss a single day. Hello? Is anyone there? I can't be scared. Not in my own house. Don't leave your missus alone with the lads. Help me! They only feed it. Right, shall we do some Tracy uh, Montage? Montague. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was like, is this a sort of technical term? Let's uh, Tracy Montage. Yeah, so we did a very good one of those. Sorry. <laughs> have you had a drink? No, I'm sorry. No, I tip. did have a. I did have a protein bar. All oh, right, excess of sugar and caffeine. Protein bar. Just <laughs> basically uh, a topic. <laughs> you, remember, you remember topics. Yeah, topics. Do they still have topics? They yeah, do. Oh, they're they? probably smaller. Do you know what I find interesting is that sweets haven't really changed since we were kids. A lot. Well, they got smaller. And I know that's they all the same. But they have all the same brands. Yeah. I'd have thought that would have all moved on like, like many times. You still have a crunchy. Yeah. Still have a Mars and a Twix. Twix. It's it's not Mars anymore, is it? No, Mars is Mars. It's is it? uh, Marathon became Snickers, of course, okay. famously. And uh, Opal Fruits became stuck. What the fuck which, are we talking about? Which listener? <laughs> John, keep these listeners in check. John, I've got some uh, listener questions from the uh, listeners of the bestseller experiment. Um, you sort of dropped into a mode then, didn't you? I have. This is my interview. <laughs> you like it? Yeah. It's only your voice worth a bit. This, this, is, uh, this is my interview. <laughs> your podcast. This is interview voice. voice. Podcast yeah. voice. Yeah. A lot sexier when you're doing your podcast. <laughs> it's got the secret. Quite unattractive normally. The, the secret. Is <laughs> the secret is to get close to the mic. So. Right. Mm. Yeah. Just that distance. Yeah, that distance. Mm. <laughs> Don't put yourself off. <laughs> Okay, <clears throat> so we have some listener questions from mm. the listeners of the bestseller experiment. Oh, I like that podcast. It's a good podcast. Who does that? Oh, well, <laughs> he's good. <laughs> the other one's not much good, though, is he? <laughs> now, now. <laughs> you don't know who which one I'm <laughs> now, <in>? exactly, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mark. <laughs> it's Mark I don't like. Start again. <laughs> 
<laughs> Just leave all these bits in, they're good. Mm. I, I would leave them in my film. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah mm. you would, yeah. Yes. All right, okay. So, uh, first question <laughs> yeah. is from Tracy Montague. Yes. How long did you spend writing the screenplay? And I, I, I looked this up, so because um, I keep a diary. How does that remind me of when you throw the cards away? That's like Jay Leno or somebody. Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. Who, fi- who fires the cards away? David Letterman? Possibly. I don't know. You don't know. I don't know. So I, I keep a diary. So I've got here. Oh, yeah. Tuesday, 26th of March, 20... 20- John called me a what? <laughs> <laughs> You'll never have these published with blue language like that. John and I found a nook in the Continental Hotel restaurant in Whitstable yesterday. Yes, we did. And started working on ideas for Red Caps, which is what it was first called. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, it's coming together pretty fast. Uh, so, yeah. So, that was back in March 2019. And then March, no, February, Wednesday 19th of February. It was a year, wasn't it? 2020, yeah. Last night, John and I wrapped up the final tweaks on the little people title change, mm-hmm. with a two-hour collabo read. I'm going to have to explain what that is. Yeah. Uh, John promised to send it to Piers in the morning. I was set to put it out of my mind for the next few weeks. By lunchtime, Piers had not only read it, but loved it and wants to shoot in early 2021. And that was before, that was just weeks before the whole world. And he, and he beat his own deadline, Yeah. which is saying something for Piers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, a year isn't bad going at all, really. No, it's from funny. a conversation to a script that then went into production. Yeah. If you do it in a year, there's not many. Yeah. Do it that quick. So it's not going to happen every year then. But it could do. <laughs> it could do. Yeah. But that is unusual, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you not say? Amongst the people we know. Well, I mean, considering it was six years since the last film, so, you know, that's. Um... Yeah, I mean, I suppose in that, oh, I've been distracted doing television. Yeah. <laughs> Learning my craft. Learning your craft. Um, uh-huh. But the, the collabo read, I mean, we've got a, here we go. right. a question from Jeff Wright. How did you manage the script development process between the two of you? Because mm. um, you were working on TV shows and stuff, so we would have conversations yeah. about story and character and ideas. Then I'd go away, knock them into shape, send them to you. And then we, because even before lockdown, because you were in Manchester a lot of the time, Yes. So we would do it over phone or FaceTime or whatever. Yeah. Um, and we had what we call collabo reads, which is where uh, we share a screen um, and uh, make it – because you like it really big, don't you? You like the script really, really big on the screen. Yeah. And then we will read <laughs> and we'll do voices. We'll do the voices of the characters and read and yeah, just but sometimes we do it in – I would say most of the collabo reads are in real life, aren't they? When um, we're together. Those are the best ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So we sit on either side of a table and then we'll read a scene and then you'll be one character and as soon as the character changes, I'll be that character. Mm. And then we just change and then we do it the other way around. So then you start so that I read every other line and then you read every other line. And that way we both get to hear yeah. the other lines done by somebody else. Yeah. But more to the point, you just hear it dramatised, don't yeah. you? Yeah, which is how I perfected my Irish accent. <laughs> your, your accent was okay. You do some good accents, actually. Your impressions are good as well, I think, actually. <laughs> Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well... Michael yeah. Caine. Well, that's just that's just when I slam my voice down. That's all that happens there. They're but, good, yeah. though. They're yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
But yeah, that was... Um, no, that doesn't really answer the question. No. How did you manage the script development process? Basically, for this one, so previously we've collab- we collaborated where I'm a bit more of a co-writer. Mm-hmm. This one, I'd say it was probably the least co-writing that I've done. And it's also the most notes that I've given. Yeah. So I've, I've, we had meetings where I would be very detailed about what I thought could be better or different. Uh, sometimes I'd be prescriptive and I'd say, we should do this. And sometimes I'd say, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I want it to be more like this. Mm. Uh, and I was quite, um, I felt I was quite brutal at certain points in the process. Like, gave you a lot of criticism and was quite negative. <laughs> uh, but well, you, the, you responded very well to all that. Well, thinking back, the first draft you didn't think was a goer, did you? No, I mean, we, we, I had, we had a meeting where I said, look, I've got to be honest with you, I don't think I'm going to direct this. So I don't want you... I, what I was guilty about was you were working for free, essentially, which is what they always tell you not to do. Yeah, but that's yeah, <laughs> what writers do. But they always say, they always say, that's the sort of modern day advice, as you say, you should never work for free, always make sure you're paid. But I, I, I'm not sure that's true, actually, because I think a lot of things happen mm. if you're willing to work for free that wouldn't happen ordinarily. However, at this point, you had just bought into the idea and you were mad keen to do it. And I said, you know what, I'm not sure of this draft, if I'm going to make this film, because on the basis of this draft, I'm not going to. Um, And I just wanted you to be aware of that, because I didn't want you to spend loads of time working and then we don't make the film, because then it's just a waste of energy, isn't it? Well, that's a director talking there, because... I, at least at the end of it, and because it was a solo writing credit, I would at least have a spec. I would have a sample. Yeah. And I think it's important if you're writing screenplays to have a good sample every year and, uh, you know, have something new that you can show people. So, And I yeah. was enjoying it. I was enjoying it. And my first draft's always rough as balls anyway. So uh, it was... Well, to give you a due, I said, look, it's your choice, but I'm not committing to directing it. It's your choice if you want to keep working on it. And you said, uh, I definitely do. And you were quite driven about it. Mm. And then later when we actually got the film financed, I said to you, you know what, give yourself a big pat on the back. Because you were the one who drove it forward when I was willing to stop. Mm. You, you, it was definitely, I said, you've got to give yourself your due and your, your due, whatever money's coming to you and whatever praise you get for the movie or whatever. Because... You were the one who said it didn't accept no and pushed on. Well, it was a very personal project as well. That was the thing. It was, mm. um, and we can talk about that later, maybe. But well, that's one of the notes. That's one of the things that made when it got a lot better. I can't remember if I said this to you or you decided it, or but you decided to put more of yourself into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And make it more about things that had happened to you in Epsom. And, yeah. and then when you did that, the script sort of came to life and it went up a gear and it was just so, so, such a better, so much better as a script. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because that almost suggests that you should... Right from the heart. Yeah, or put yourself in it. Yeah. Well, that's what... It's Mark DeVoe's question, co-presenter. Oh, I know him. Yeah, yeah. Lovely voice. Yes, Lovely he's voice. He's got, a, he's got a very good speaking voice. Very good speaking His mum would be proud. <laughs> when was the moment you knew you had a great screenplay? And I think that was... When that was the was, moment? Yeah, when you... When you put yourself into it I think that was yeah it was that draft that you came back with mm. and you put more of your own personality into it and you'd gone further mm. and it, it was weirder actually 
It was more <laughs> extreme, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. And then that's when I clicked with it. I was like, ooh. What I find interesting about it is when I watch the movies, sometimes it, I almost cringe about how similar I feel I am to Doug, yeah. Doug's character. <laughs> like I even look at, I don't look like Doug, but he's, he's you know, he's a yeah. bit, there's a bit yeah. of a resemblance. Yeah. Yeah. Doug always said it. Doug was like, oh, I look like you. <laughs> and it, it, I it's interesting that it's your script, but mm. I feel like a lot of ownership, if you like, of that character. And I sort of it almost cringe like, oh, God, it's quite revealing quite a lot about. But that's what I think what happens when you, as a writer, if you dig down into specifics, you, that's where you tend to find the stuff that people relate to. The, yeah. the stuff you think, oh, God, is anyone going to get this? Is anyone going to understand this? And weirdly, that's the stuff that resonates with people the most. Yeah, um, when you so, go, the personal becomes universal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the thing I think is there's two different tracks you can be on. So you can be up there doing Marvel or Disney or you know Star Wars or one of those huge franchises, and then you're in a then you're making a product which is very commercialized and follows formula, and you know that's a different thing. People go to see those movies for a different experience. Mm. They just want to see loads of stuff smashed up. Yeah, spectacle. Everything on the biggest scale and mm. lots of cool lines and one-liners and stuff. This type of movie where you're way down in a very different furrow. Um, so we made this for seven and a half million quid, uh, which in, for a movie is not a lot of money. So um, you have to be different and you have to go to different places and show people things they don't normally get. Mm in order to compete with those huge franchises. Yeah. So we kind of did that. We went to lots of different extremes um, and put a lot of our own personalities into it and, uh, and made it very specific. And I think it's, it's much better as a result. Yeah, I think so. I think that, because one of the lessons from Robot Overlords as well is I think we tried to be a bigger movie than we were. And actually the yeah. thing that makes... The, the bits I still love about that film the most are the rough edges, the weird bits, the, the the funny lines, the strange lines, and stuff like that. And we took a lot of those out. We smoothed a lot of those edges. Well, off, I think you know. I think we we suffered because it was so it tested so well with the target audience, and they liked it so much, and they kept likening it to big movies like Transformers and things like that. Mm. That that then became this pressure that built up to make that this is a really commercial movie. Yeah. And so you've kind of almost got to treat it like a commercial movie. Yeah. And so we took out a lot of the weird, quirky, goofy stuff mm. and some of the bad language and all that kind of thing. And um, I don't think that it, it really should have been polished like that because mm. it actually all along was a small movie. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it was, like I said, in, this fur in the furrow, the different furrow. Mm. So, yeah, but that's with hindsight. We didn't really yeah. know that at the time. And it's probably the only kids' movie out there with bare knuckle boxing in it, so, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of things in there that aren't in any other movies, but um, yeah, 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 it kind of then fell a little bit between two stools, didn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we learned that lesson. We learned that lesson. We've we've, we've made all sorts of new mistakes. Don't worry. Um, Alex Waite has a question for you, John. Do you That's a good name? Do you do you? Uh, do That's you like a made-up name. Is this a real question? It's a real Alex. So is there's a, real... a person called Alex Waite. Alex Waite. Yes. Hello, Alex. Thank you for your question. 
He sounds like a character. <laughs> One of your characters. I have to, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like going to be the question's going to be, <laughs> John, why do you like Mark so much? <laughs> Funny you should say that. Yeah. Why is Mark so brilliant? Um, John, do you storyboard and previs sequences and how do you block sequences? Oh, that's a big question. That is a big question. Uh, Welcome to Film Directing 101. I hope you enjoyed that. And for the full episode, check out the deep dive that's coming on 27th of January, which is the same day as the film's UK release. Now, over on social media, thanks to everyone who gets keeps in touch with us over on social media. We love to hear about your wins and things that are working for you. Uh, still catching on with some of the New Year ones, actually. Uh, and first of all, we got one from uh, this came on December 31st. So apologies for the delay on this one. But this is from Sadly Shah Johanna Bass. I hope I got that right. Who says, I finished a spanking new short story and submitted it right before the year ends. I've not written a fresh short story in years. Talk about ending 2022 with something big going to give credit to uh, brianna teens for never giving up on me and to the bestseller experiment for the inspirational fantastic news and that congratulations on that and uh, hope 2023 is even better for you and then back in july phil oddy who is at phil oddy over on twitter said i think it's time for a bestseller experiment style public declaration this novel which might be called echoes or possibly entanglement or maybe something else altogether will be with beta readers by January 1st, 2023. Uh, Mark, stay, please add me to your list. And that's what I do. I put you in my diary and I had a whole bunch of them at the end of the year. And Phil, he only went and did it uh, on December 28th. He said, I'm done with three days to spare PDF created, ready to email out tomorrow. Thank you to everyone on hashtag 200 words a day for your support, likes and retweets. And he settled on Echoes as a title in the end, coming one day to a bookshop near you. So yeah, if you're on Twitter, do check out uh, the hashtag 200 words a day. I'm on there. A whole bunch of writers are out there. We're doing our 200 words a day and logging them every day and checking in and keeping ourselves accountable. And uh, last but by no means least, we've got a, a lovely link from Jeff White, who's a Patreon supporter. He's over on our, our BXP group on Facebook. And he said, I wrote a guest blog for the Writer's Cookbook, all about writing as a stay-at-home parent, sharing some tips of what's worked for me to fit writing in when you're time poor. I thought it might be of interest to a few people here. Well, I think it's of interest to a lot of our listeners. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, or if you go to writerscookbook.com forward slash writing dash parent. So check that out. Thanks to everyone who gets in touch. Uh, please, uh, you can drop us a line at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there, or you can join us on social media. We're Bestseller Experiment on Facebook and at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram. And please subscribe, rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we've got some cracking guests coming on that you're not going to want to miss. We've got people like Peter May, Simon Scarrow, Richard Armitage. Yes, the star of The Hobbit and Spooks. He's coming on soon. So yeah, subscribe. Uh, and thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. And thank you, dear listener, for putting up with this um, odd episode. It's not our usual kind of episode, but, you know, real life gets in the way every now and then. And um, hopefully Mr. D will be back with us next week. But until then, happy writing. Happy writing.